Well, a very good evening to everyone. It is Acts chapter 7, where we want to begin in the Bible in just a moment. In Acts chapter 7, I'll invite you to be getting your Bible out and turn them over or click over to Acts the 7th chapter. As we get ready to spend just a few more minutes together in the Word of God on what has been just a just an outstanding first day of the week. Appreciate so very much your presence this evening. Appreciate the hearty way in which you joined in in the singing just a few moments ago. It's just been a very encouraging Lord's Day. Appreciate uh, just the, the good receptiveness to this morning's sermon. There's always uncertainty when you preach on certain topics. How's that going to go? And I guess I should not be surprised anymore. When I get up and preach on subjects like I preached on this morning and I'm worried about what everybody's going to say because what I have found in the going on four years that we have been here is that this is a group of people who are eager and who want the truth. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I don't have to water down or don't have to try to cater to certain folks. Just let the Word of God just speak for itself and let the chips fall where they may. So I'm so thankful for you and who you are and for for what you stand for as the people of God. Hope you've got Acts chapter 7 opened up. This is that powerful sermon that Stephen preached to a Jewish audience that ultimately, as you know, led to his stoning, his death. But it is a sermon that if you were to take the time to read it all the way through, it essentially tells the story of the Old Testament. And that, of course, includes lots and lots of details about Old Testament history. And that includes the details that are given in verses 44 and 45. In Acts 7 and in verse 44, Stephen says, "...our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness." Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David. Now if you've been following along in our Bible reading schedule for these past six months, then you know exactly what Stephen is talking about in these verses. Stephen is talking about that special structure that we read about in the Old Testament known as the tabernacle. That unique building that is first introduced to us in Exodus chapter 25, it is transported all throughout the wilderness wanderings, the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and it is ultimately then brought into the land of Canaan when Israel finally seizes the land of promise in the days of Joshua. The tabernacle is mentioned literally, or referenced literally, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And we have read, again, if you followed along in the reading plan, we have read most of those verses that mention or specifically uh, talk about the tabernacle in our congregational reading plan, which all just kind of makes me wonder, how much thought have you given to the tabernacle? You know, for something that occupies so much space in our Bibles, think about the extensive and meticulous details about the design of the tabernacle, the size of the tabernacle, the measurements of the tabernacle, the colors of the tabernacle. I wonder sometimes, I wonder if maybe we have shortchanged the tabernacle. Well, this evening what I'd like to do for just a few minutes is I actually would like to give the tabernacle some of our attention. I want us to notice tonight some timeless truths that we can learn from the tabernacle. 
Now, I want to say I recognize that we are not under the Old Testament system of worship or the Old Testament law or the Old Testament covenant and that we do not have the tabernacle like the Israelite people did so long ago. But as is the case with so many things that we read about in the Old Testament, I believe we are able to learn some important truths about God, about His character, about the expectations that He has for His people, some things about God that do not ever, ever change. And this evening I want to highlight just three of those truths. We've reached a point in our reading thus far where we're not going to be reading much about the tabernacle from here through the rest of the year as we work through the Old Testament. David, as we read last week in 2 Samuel 7, David has expressed his desire to build a more permanent structure for God. David would not be the one to do that. His son Solomon is soon to do that. That place will be called the temple. Which means then, we need to think about the tabernacle. What maybe can we glean from our understanding of the tabernacle? And I do mean, what can we glean and learn more than just the facts about the tabernacle? I remember being a youngster sitting in Bible class and when it came time to learn about the tabernacle, what did that mean? Well, it meant the teacher would put up like one of those flannel graph things or a a picture of the tabernacle or maybe even have a little model of that and we learned about this is where this went and this was the length and the cubits and what's a cubit? How does that come out into our measurements today? These were the different furnishings and we learned all of the information about the tabernacle. Well, tonight I'd like for us to do a little bit better better than just gather information. This evening I want us to see what we can learn from the tabernacle. What does the tabernacle teach us even today that will help us in our walk with God? Well, first and foremost, let's just talk for a moment about the very purpose of the tabernacle, which was what? Well, the purpose of the tabernacle was for God to be able to live among His people. Find with me, if you will, Exodus chapter 25. This is that very first place that the tabernacle is ever mentioned in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 25, here Moses is told why they need to build this big, elaborate tent. I've kind of, up to this point, I've kind of referred to it almost as a building, but really it was just a big portable tent. Well, why did they need to build that big thing? Exodus 25 tells us, Exodus 25, look in verse 8. The Lord says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. God says, I want to dwell in your midst. You know, we tend to think of the tabernacle as kind of a of a worship center. We talk about all the worship things that went on there. And so we kind of almost think of the tabernacle kind of like our church buildings today. But in truth, the tabernacle was much less of a church building and much more like a home for God. Think about it. You don't have to have a tabernacle to worship God. In the patriarchal age, before the tabernacle even existed, People like Noah and Abraham, they were able to build an altar and worship God right there on the spot anywhere that they were. And that worship was accepted and pleasing unto God. And so you do not have to have a tabernacle in order to come before God and to worship Him acceptably. 
If you were an Israelite then in Exodus chapter 25, what was the reason you needed a tabernacle? The reason you needed a tabernacle was so that God can live with you. That's what made the tabernacle so unique and special. Look with me in Exodus 29. That's further there. In Exodus chapter 29, right near the end of that chapter, God singles the tabernacle out as being the place where He comes to be among His people. In Exodus 29, look in verse number 45. Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I believe it is right about at this point that we begin to sense the importance of this unique and singular tent. Because the story of the Bible really is about this thing right here. It is the story of God and man trying to dwell together. Isn't that what the Bible's really all about? That story, of course, is ruptured very, very early on. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, when they choose to sin, when they choose to violate God's will, they choose to do what they want to do instead of what God wanted them to do, that made it impossible for God and them, God and man, God and sinful creatures to continue to dwell together in the way that they had before sin entered the picture. How in the world can a holy and perfect God dwell with sinners, sinful creatures? And so as we read in Genesis 3, we're left maybe wondering, well, well, what's going to happen now? How can God dwell with sinful people? How in the world can that fellowship ever be restored? What's going to occur? In fact, the whole Bible deals with that question and that idea. And by the way, by the time that Jesus comes along, and Jesus, of course, is going to be the answer to all of that problem. When Jesus finally bursts onto the scene in the beginning of John's Gospel, what does John say about Him? John 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. If you were actually looking at a Bible in John 1 that was in the original language, the word that you would see there would be the word tabernacle. The Word came and He tabernacled among us. And John is borrowing that idea from the Old Testament. The idea of God coming down and dwelling among His people. Look in Revelation chapter 7. Let's kind of go to the other end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 7, John gives us some some glimpses, some glimpses that he has given and he then shares those with us. Glimpses of heaven. And he talks about what's going on in heaven. In Revelation chapter 7, I'm reading here in verse 15. In Revelation 7 verse 15, talking here about the saints, those who are saved. He says, therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. Then notice this. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Think about that. In God's presence. Living with God. That's what the Bible is all about from cover to cover. It is the story of God trying to rescue us from sin so that we can live with Him. Live with this awesomely holy God. And what the tabernacle does is the tabernacle presents to us the beginning of that plan. Now... 
When God dwelt in the tabernacle, it was not a perfect dwelling together of God and man. It's not like it was in the Garden of Eden before sin interrupted and threw a wrench into everything. But it's a good first step. In fact, it is a giant step in the right direction that man needs to go to fully dwell with God. That God came down. I want us to think about this. God came down and lived with His people in the tabernacle. In fact, that is evident just by noticing the very position of the tabernacle. Would you go back to the Old Testament? Look at Numbers chapter 2. In Numbers chapter 2, where was the tabernacle located in the arrangement of Israel's camp? My graphic there on the screen kind of gives away the answer already. But look with me in Numbers chapter 2. Where was the tabernacle located? Numbers chapter 2, verse 2. God says that the people of Israel, they shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. God specifically arranged that each of the tribes of Israel would be on every side of the tabernacle, which means God was right there, smack dab in the middle of His people. God moved in. That's the language I'm going to use. God moved in, so to speak, to be with the Israelites. And I must tell you, as I have thought about that, and as I prepared this lesson, that thought has really just kind of taken my breath away. The idea that God wanted to come down here and live with a bunch of former slaves and unwashed shepherds on this dirty planet that God would actually move in with His people? Can you think of a greater marker of the love of God in all of the Old Testament than the tabernacle itself? I can't think of a greater one. Because it represented God's fervent desire for He and His people to dwell together. You know, sometimes we talk about, we think about how much we want to go to heaven. We sing lots of songs about that. I'm going to that city where the roses never fade. And we ought to say that. And we ought to think about that. And we ought to, uh, we ought to be blessed by the thought of that idea. But I'm afraid that sometimes in all of our thinking about us wanting to go to heaven, is we forget sometimes just how much God wants us to come and live with Him. So much so that He was willing to come down to earth and set a pattern so that we would then begin to understand just how much He longs for us. You know, young people today are often, really people of all ages, but I think about young people in particular. They're often concerned about whether or not people like them. Young girls ask, does does He like me? Young boys stop and think, you know, does she like me? We think about different groups of people. You know, do they like me? What do I got to do to get them to like me? We go on our social media accounts and we post pictures of ourselves to see how many likes we can get. We want people to like us. But you know what the tabernacle says? The tabernacle said to Israel and the tabernacle says to us today, God, God likes you. Just think about that for a second. God likes you. In fact... God loves you. And He wants you to live with Him, not just for the short period of time that He lived with the Israelites on earth, 
But He wants you to live with Him for all of eternity. The tabernacle reminds us of that timeless truth. And I believe it helps to encourage our hearts even more so that we can go and be there and we can make that dream a reality. Just like this second idea. The tabernacle also reminds us that worship is designed to please God, not to please us. Can you go back to that verse in Exodus chapter 25? I need to actually reread that verse. We kind of glossed over it a moment ago. In Exodus chapter 25, look at verse 9 again. In Exodus 25, in verse number 9, There the Lord says, talking about making this sanctuary that I can dwell in your midst, verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle in all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Did you notice the emphasis just in that one little verse on how it was important for Moses and the Israelites to make this thing according to God's specifications? In fact, if you were to read the next several chapters... God actually spells out in very laborious detail all of those specifications pertaining to the tabernacle. Chapter 25 continues to talk about instructions for the ark, for the table, for the lampstand. Chapter 26 gives instructions on how the the framing and the covering and the, the rooms and the measurements and how all that was to be done. Chapter 27 gives instructions on the altar and on the court and on the lamps and the oil. Chapters 28 and 29 give instructions for the priest. The garments that they were to wear, how they were to appear before the Lord as they conducted worship. And then there was instructions given to them on how to conduct the worship of the tabernacle. Over and over, you read those chapters, over and over God makes it abundantly clear how all of this was to be done to His liking, to His approval. Now let me tell you what I find most interesting about all of that. What I find most interesting is that in all of those chapters, with all of those instructions on how the construction and the worship of the tabernacle was to be done, not once does God ask the Israelites, hey, what would you all like done here? Hey, how could we build this thing so that you guys would like it and you guys would get maximum enjoyment out of it? You know, what color schemes do you guys prefer for the tabernacle? Do you think that it should be overlaid with gold? Or, you know, what about silver? Silver's pretty good. Silver would be cheaper. What about silver here? At no time, not a single time, are the people of Israel consulted for their input. Not once. God gives His pattern, and it is exactly that. It is His pattern for His home and the worship that would then be offered to Him. God is completely uninterested in what the Israelites like or think or want in this case. And I would have you notice as well, as you were to read all of these verses and think about all of this, God never says, you know, how can we build this thing so that other nations, pagan nations, will want to come here and worship with us? You know, what can we do here that would really attract a crowd, the unchurched out there, so that they'll want to come in here and be with us? Not once does God suggest that. The Exodus account of the tabernacle shows us that God created the tabernacle to His specifications to please Him. And I believe there's something we all learn from that. In fact, I believe that's the reason all them chapters are given to us. 
That there is something we're supposed to learn from that even thousands of years later. I saw a video recently where there was a church that had... uh, They had commissioned kind of one of these man-on-the-street interview segment things. And so he was just going around to different people on the street, just kind of different strangers, and he'd grab them and bring them in for questioning. And the question that they were asking people was this. They were asking people, why don't you go to church? And I'm sure they were probably in some populated area where there wasn't a lot of you know church-going people, Christian folks, or at least people who identify as Christians. So they just asked me, why don't you go to church? And you know already what the most common answer was. In fact, it's the answer that just about everybody gives when you ask them, why don't you go to church? They said, because church is boring. Church is so dull. And what they did, what this church did in the video, is they cut together all of those responses. I mean, we're talking like dozens of people just kept saying the same thing. Boring, boring, boring. And they cut all of those responses together. Boring, boring, dull, dull, uninterested, dry, boring, dull, dull. And then the screen went black. If you're hearing all these people saying it was boring and dull and boring and dull, the screen went black and then slowly faded in in white letters was this question. What would you like in a church? There it is. What do you want? What do you like? How could we reframe church? How could we restructure it? How could we redo it so that you would come to church? How could we redo all of this so that you would actually like it? So that you would find it interesting? Would you like maybe a big cool band? stage and smoke and lights and all the complete nine yards? Do you want all kinds of exciting drama and plays and skits? How about a preacher who's really hip and who's really cool and is really funny? What about a big giant gymnasium and basketball court and a big place to play? Hey, how can we please you? Now we might think about that today and we might think, well, certainly that kind of attitude was never present during the time of the Bible. Certainly not during the time of the Old Testament, but sadly, you can actually find that very attitude right here in the book of Exodus. You know where you find it? You find it in chapter 32. When the people got restless, and what did they do? They built an idol. Because that is what they truly wanted. That is what would bring them enjoyment. That is what they would really, really like. But what the tabernacle reminds us of, is that worship is not about pleasing people. Worship is about pleasing God. You think about it. You think about just how different the New Testament, think about how different the Gospel would be if Paul and Peter and all the other apostles, if they just went around to people just kind of taking a poll all the time. Hey, what would you guys like? In the gospel. Hey, we've got apostolic authority and we can kind of work in some of your likes to, to what the gospel is going to be from here on out through eternity. You know, what can we put in the gospel that would really please you? Can you imagine what a big glommed up conglomeration mess the gospel would have been if that's the approach they had taken? The Jews, they most certainly would have grafted in the Ten Commandments with a side order of circumcision for certain. Pagans would have said, hey, well, I'm, we, like, we like some idols. Can you throw some idols into the gospel? Idols are really cool. Let's get idols in there. That'll make everybody happy. And you know what? The gospel maybe would have made a lot of people happy in that way. Everybody would have had a say in it. Everybody would have liked it except, except God. God wouldn't have liked it. You see, it's not about pleasing everybody. 
It's about pleasing the Lord. And what we need to learn from that is that while there are lots of churches today who are willing and who do pander and cater to the desires and the wishes of the masses... There are lots of churches who are willing to do whatever it takes to bring people in the door. Whether it's offering the fun and games or the recreation or the entertainment. All in the name of quote-unquote fellowship. Or we'll call it a ministry. Or we'll slap the label of spiritual on it. When we see all of that, and even sometimes when we are invited and even maybe even tempted to go and to be part of all of that, what we need to ask is this simple question. Could you do that in the tabernacle? Could you get away with that in the tabernacle? When we see all of that, now I realize, I realize that there's been a change of covenant. I get that. I realize lots of time has passed. Things are different now. It's not the way it was under the Old Testament. Why don't you stay with me here? When we see all of the people pleasing that's going on in the religious world today, and all that stuff just kind of gets passed off as being genuine worship, we need to ask, could you get away with that? At the tabernacle. Would God be pleased with that? I'll say once again, I realize we are far removed from the events that we're reading about all the way back here in the book of Exodus. We are far removed from that particular system of worship. But what the tabernacle is showing us and reminding us is that God is really not interested in what we like in worship. Because worship isn't about pleasing us. Worship... Is about pleasing Him. Which provides me then, finally, the perfect segue to share with you this final truth about the tabernacle that is timeless and is still important for us today. And that is the importance of obedience to God and His pattern and how that is absolutely essential. If you're still here in Exodus, would you jump over to the very end of the book in chapter 40? In Exodus chapter 40... After giving all of those chapters upon chapters of instructions, Exodus 40 actually tells us about the construction of the tabernacle. And if you were to read Exodus chapter 40, and we did read it as part of our reading plan, so some of you may remember this, what is the pounding refrain repeated again and again and again all throughout the chapter? It is the refrain of obedience. In fact, jump back up to the last verse of verse 39. Let's start there. Chapter 39, verse 43. Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Chapter 40, drop down to verse 16. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. Verse 19. Moses spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 21. He brought the ark into the tabernacle. Set up the veil of the screen. Screened the ark of the testimony. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 23. He arranged the bread on it before the Lord. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 25. He set up the lamps before the Lord. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Drop down to verse 29. He set up the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. He offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering. As the Lord had commanded Moses, one more, verse 32, when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. You know what Exodus 40 says? Exodus 40 says 
They did it God's way. They did what God told them to do. Now I want you to stand for just a moment as best you can in Moses' shoes. Moses has just recently come down from the mountain. And he is carrying with him all of the plans and the patterns that God has given him for the tabernacle. It was an enormous project of trying to construct this out in the middle of a desert. They are far, far from, from Egypt and some of the, if you want to say luxuries that they would have had access to, like the workshops and tools, they don't have all of that. I don't know what kind of tools they would have had to construct these things. This is a hard and difficult job. It is complicated putting all of these pieces together. It is not an easy piece of architecture. And of course you had to know there must have been people who were there at that time who were thinking to themselves, I mean, come on. How much of this, how much of this even really makes any sense? You know, why do we have to build it like this? You know, I'm a builder. I do this professionally. I can think of a much better way to do this. Why does it have to be so elaborate? Why does it have to be so expensive? Why does it have to be these colors and these lengths and these widths? You see, whenever we receive instructions in whatever form they may be, there's always a temptation. You should kind of modify it a little bit. Kind of alter it a little bit. Change it up just a little bit. I think it is very hard for human beings to look at just about anything and to not think to themselves, eh, I could think of a better way of doing it than that. Just a little tweak here. Just a minor adjustment there. And yet the Bible says, Moses never did that. And we may look at that and we might think, well, you know what, that's really commendable. Hey, good on you, Moses. Proud of you. Glad you did everything exactly according to the pattern. But I want you to understand, there is a much more important reason that Moses did it even beyond that. Do you know what the Hebrew writer says about the tabernacle? The Hebrew writer says that this special tent that Moses constructed, that it is a model. It is a miniature version of the true tabernacle. In Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, The Hebrew writer says that what Moses built all those centuries ago, it was a model of heaven itself. It was a preview, a figure, a type, if you will, of where Jesus went to, to offer His own blood for our sins. I'm looking in Hebrews chapter 9, look in verse 11. In Hebrews 9 and verse 11, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, your Bible may actually say tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Hebrew writers being very clear, not talking about the physical tabernacle anymore. In fact, by the time Hebrews was written, Moses' tent, it was long, long gone. That was ancient history. What the Hebrew writer says is that Jesus entered into the real tabernacle. Verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That, that is why Moses had to make the tabernacle according to the pattern. Because the tabernacle was not just some kind of standalone project, kind of all by itself, you just do whatever you want, and you just do it exactly the way that you see fit. No. The tabernacle was actually a model of something bigger. Something much bigger. 
And thus it had to look like the thing that it was previewing, heaven itself. Which means, Moses did not have the liberty to just come along and say, alright, look in here at these plans, Lord. And you want the holy place to be enclosed? You want it to be closed off where nobody can actually see into the high priest and see what he's doing? No, 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 no. We don't want to do that. We want to open that thing up. Let some air get in there. That would be a much better way to do that. And you know, what's the business of these two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place? Come on, that just seems like a lot of extra work. It's making this thing a lot more cumbersome. Come on, we don't need to do that. We don't need all of these extra details. That would never, ever work. Because as soon as Moses decided to do that, then all of the correspondence that God had designed in those Old Testament concepts to serve as a copy, as a shadow of heavenly things, Hebrews 8 verse 5, then all of that would just fall apart. Now let me ask you, when Moses was coming down the mountain with all those plans and patterns for the tabernacle, was he thinking to himself, oh, I've got to get this exactly right. We've got to make it exactly right because hundreds of years from now, some guy known as the Hebrew writer, he's going to write about this and he's going to compare my tabernacle to the tabernacle of heaven and I've got to make sure that it's exactly right so that it all matches up. Is that what Moses was thinking? No. Moses didn't even have a clue about the things Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 is describing. All Moses knew, and this is the point I want us to take from this, all Moses knew was this is what God has told us? And you know what? We better just do what God said. We don't need all kinds of explanations about it. We just better do what the Lord has commanded because God expects our obedience. You know what? People today are always seeming to question God's plans and God's patterns. People ask, God's pattern for marriage? One man? And one woman committed to each other for one lifetime? What's up with that? That's so outdated. That can't be so. We've got all kinds of better ideas. Or what about God's pattern for the church? What do you mean? What do you mean that the church can't be involved in the fun and games business? Or politics? Or social justices? Come on! Why has the church got to be about what God says it's about? Or what about God's pattern for salvation? Baptism? You all are saying that the Bible says that baptism is essential for man's salvation. Come on, that just can't be. So I've got some better ideas. You see, people are always trying to tweak, to adjust the pattern that God has given us. And yet what the tabernacle shows us is that God knows what He's doing. And God has big plans. Plans that may involve years and years and years down the line, maybe off all the way into eternity, that we cannot comprehend or we will never fully understand in this life. But what we need to simply be committed to doing is obeying His Word. That we will not tamper with God's pattern. The tabernacle teaches us that our compliance with the pattern, that it is paramount. What I would hope is that what would be said of us would be the same thing that was said of Moses. As the Lord had commanded, so they did. One final passage. 
Go back to Exodus 40 one last time. And look down there at the very end of the chapter. What happened whenever God's people, whenever they followed His pattern, what happened whenever they were determined to worship in the way that pleases Him? Well, Exodus 40 tells us. In Exodus 40, look in verse number 34. In Exodus 40 and in verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What a powerful scene that must have been to have lived at that time and to see the glory of the Lord filling the whole tabernacle. And what a powerful close, I think, that brings to our time. Spent looking at these timeless truths that are associated with the tabernacle. I look at those three simple ideas, and they are simple, but they are so foundational. And you know what I realize I want? I want. I want to obey God. And I want to do it exactly as He's instructed. And I want as well to worship God, and I want to do that in a way that brings honor and glory to Him, in a way that pleases Him, not me. And I want so much as well, probably more than anything else. I want to live with Him. I want to dwell with Him in that heavenly tabernacle throughout the ages of the ages. What about you? You want to live with God for all of eternity? I know for some folks the thought of that might sound kind of a little bit frightening, a little bit daunting. Being with God forever, I mean... What would we talk about? I wouldn't know what to say. Well, I would encourage you to figure something out. You ought to think about what you'll say. Because the fact of the matter is, there's coming a day when we will all stand before the Lord. There will at least be a moment in time when every single one of us, we will be in the presence of the Lord. It's called the day of judgment. And on that day, those who are prepared, they will be invited to come. And to live with the Lord for all of eternity. But those who are not prepared, they will be cast away from His presence. Never to enjoy the presence of God ever, ever again. So what does that do for you? And for your desire to know God and to live with Him and to render your obedience to Him this very night. If you are not a child of God, I realize we've been looking in the Old Testament, so we've not really been talking about Jesus and about the Gospel, but we did read those verses in Hebrews that talks about what Jesus came to do. He came to be the perfect sacrifice to be able to author our eternal redemption. Can we help somebody tonight to respond to that good news by submitting themselves in faith, confessing Jesus as God's Son, repenting and turning away from sin, and then being buried with Christ in baptism to have all of your sins washed away. Can we help you to be a child of God tonight? Brother or sister, it may very well be that you've just not been living faithfully for the Lord. It may be that some of these kinds of things you've just had wrong concepts of and just maybe some bad attitudes about, and you've not been giving God the full obedience that He deserves. 
need to repent of that. You need to ask God for His forgiveness. If you need us as your brothers and sisters to, to strengthen you and your resolve to serve God in a better way, then this is your invitation as well. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to just come forward and make it known. Why don't you do that right now while we stand and while we sing?